Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. I first knew Katie Bowser Hudson as a writer and performer of children's music. Her Coltrane Railroad records are straight-up jazz music, but the lyrics are for little people. She's also part of the Rain for Roots collective. But Katie is also a gifted poet. A couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer that required very aggressive treatment. As you'll hear in our conversation, writing poetry was one of the most important ways she pushed back against suffering and the threat of death. The poems she wrote during those days are collected in a chapbook called Now I Lay Me Down to Fight. Well, Katie Bowser Hudson, I'm so glad you're here. I've, I, I've been really looking forward to this conversation because I love these poems so much. So your chapbook of poetry is called Now I Lay Me Down to Fight. The I, I'm just going to let you sort of tell the origin story of, of this thing because it's an amazing story. And um, and it's, it's an amazing collection of poetry. Um, there's a, a, strange to say, a playfulness about these that I'll take that. that just yeah, feels we can like, talk about play somewhere in here for sure. Yeah, great. But the circumstances out of which these poems came, not super playful. So, so tell us about that, Katie. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, a couple summers ago, so coming up on two summers ago here, I got a scholarship um, from these um, these amazing folks. There's this group called the Sustainable Arts Foundation, mm-hmm. and they give scholarships to uh to artists who have young children to they give residencies and scholarships and grants and things so i wonder how many people are already like googling right now (laughs) wait what (laughs) (laughs) um and i got this um i got this writing residency to go study poetry for a week in martha's vineyard at the martha's vineyard institute for creative writing Mm -hmm. so me and i and i got my buddy flo oaks to go too i was like hey flo Go go apply for this. So she got one for fiction. So we uh-huh. made a girls' trip out of <laughs> out yeah. of it, and then uh, we went up to Martha's Vineyard, and I uh, left my kids in Pennsylvania with my folks while my husband was working, and studied poetry all week and um, and fiction. By the way, um, just for ki- like I was kind of hoping to do that on the side. Mm-hmm. So I had this glorious week in Martha's Vineyard, where. Oh man, we we took walks and we hung out by the ocean and ate fish and chips and um, sat around with writers, like thirty awesome writers, all day yeah. with these amazing teachers. And you know, I've I've spent I had spent the five years before that um, holding down the fort while my husband was on the road writing kids music. Um, I'd been homeschooling for the last two. I mean, I just just gotten into homeschooling. Yeah. Um, and my husband was still on the road, still is. Yeah. But um, I mean, wearing all these hats at the same time. And for a week to go, a whole week to go hone my craft again yeah. was just awesome. It yeah. was just with no special project that I had to have a deadline for. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had ones that I wanted to do. but mm-hmm. So I had this week to sharpen all my tools. Um so I did. And I came back with this list of all of these things that I wanted to get done. And the next day, I was in Boston and staying at my buddy's house. And I went, uh, <laughs> I took a shower and I went, okay, there's something wrong with my breast. Mm. And, um, and 
I ended up having, I mean, I Googled and I could either have had mastitis or this one form of cancer called inflammatory breast cancer, which doesn't look just um, PSA, doesn't look like cancer usually looks. So, Mm. um, yeah, it, it was this strange thing. And I knew that I didn't have mastitis. That was my other option because I wasn't nursing. So uh, I got real nervous real fast and started doing a lot of research and headed to a hospital in Pennsylvania where I picked up my kids and and went and got a mammogram and some ultrasounds and found out that I had inflammatory breast cancer. There's a poem at the very end that I wrote when I think I was 27 years old. I'm not sure, something like that. And I reread it a few days before, uh, I read it a few minutes, excuse me, before um, I got this diagnosis. Like I was waiting, I'd gotten this diagnosis and I pulled out this old poetry that I'd written in my 20s. Um, I put this book together when I was on tour with Waterdeep way back when. And I pulled out this poem, and it's the only time I had ever in my whole life used cancer imagery. And mm. I had this poem that said, I will come like chemo to kill so you can live. And I went, oh, I've got cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few minutes later, they came in and told me I had specifically inflammatory breast cancer, and I needed to run for my life pretty much. Wow. So the next day, I we grabbed my kids. My mom got in the car. We went to uh, went back to Nashville, and I was in chemo in a few days. And so the next, over the next 10 months, I had uh, chemotherapy, a double mastectomy, um, 30 rounds of radiation, a couple other surgeries, and all the stuff. Like, basically, they, they just completely threw the kitchen sink in it. And it was way hard, and the way that I dealt all the way through was writing. So process-wise, if you're wondering <laughs> when these happened, this happened while I was bawling. This happened while I was in waiting rooms. This happened um, between while I was laying in bed really sick and couldn't get up. Um, so these are not after-the-fact poems. These are smack-in-the-middle-of-it poems. And I didn't say, oh, this will make a nice little collection. These were <laughs> like my holding-on-for-dear-life poems. Uh-huh. So, and then uh-huh. afterwards I thought, hey, maybe this would be helpful. If I, yeah. It would be helpful for me to put them together, and maybe somebody else out there, this will help put words to it. Yeah. I can't remember. One of the poems, you talk about that idea of, of putting words. Is it the chemo poem? Where you, Let's maybe see. Not. You know, I said, it in the, I said it in the intro to that's, the book. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, because it was about. really helpful to me. There, there's a great book by a guy named Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score on Trauma. And he has this um, super helpful idea that trauma is pre-verbal. And um, in my, my self-diagnosing trauma afterwards, I went, well, if trauma is pre-verbal, then I think what I better do is keep trying to put words to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that and the other big idea I got from there was I need to play this year. Hmm. So this wow. year, my self-diagnosis is keep talking and play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's my, uh, yeah, that's my prescription. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Preverbal. What do you? What does that mean be, beyond the obvious that, that you don't have to have words to? It gets to, locked to into you when uh-huh. when like trauma is is super hard to express. It's hard to it, like people. It makes you start to talk the way I'm trying to talk right. Like it makes you stutter. It's really uh-huh. hard to get your head and your mouth around an idea. Uh-huh. Um, one of the hallmarks of trauma that I read about is a, is a sense of feeling trapped. Um, 
So okay, so this is this is in his book. It's kind of fascinating. The the Bessel uh, van der Kolk book. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Pavlov's most famous experiment is the you know the 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 bells and the yeah. the dog salivating thing. Uh-huh. His second most famous experiment was kind of accidental. Those dogs that he used were in a basement in their cages when it got flooded. And they were locked in their cages and couldn't get out. Uh-huh. And afterwards, he had traumatized dogs, uh-huh. and he could not get them to come out of their cage. And one of the things that um, that's apparently kind of known about trauma is that trauma tends to get locked into you when you're in a traumatic situation and can't imagine or find a way out. Wow. So the dogs, it, it wouldn't, they, it's not that they wouldn't go in the cage where they almost drowned, because they wouldn't come out of the cage. They wouldn't. They? He had to drag them out of the cages. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? That's so strange. Yeah. You, it gets, you get locked into this situation where you cannot imagine coming out of it. You get, it gets stuck in you. Mm-hmm. And so, so putting yeah. words to that trauma, very difficult. Um, um, at the time, you know, it, at the time, I, just, I really just kind of had to do it, Jonathan. I mean, uh-huh. I guess it was, it was difficult, but it was really my lifeline. Yeah. It was the thing I did in the middle of it um, that helped me have some control. Yeah, it was the way. It's kind of a, I mean, a, a little. I I would say it's it's how I played in the middle mm. of it. It's the yeah. way I I did the um, I did the work of imagining and putting this in in context, putting this in bigger context, um, and remembering where I am in the universe, who I am. Yeah. <laughs> it, it you know figuring out the. I, I can't remember if we're going to read this poem, but I have this part about meta micro in between. Um, it was I had to kind mm-hmm. of put all my lenses on in that situation. <laughs> my super my super big Hubble telescope lens and my tiny tiny little microscope lens, and see where I fit in there. Yeah, you know, you're yeah. dealing with huge de- existential questions with super microscopic things in your body that are trying to kill you. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, would you? Uh, I, there are several poems. I, I hope we can get through several of them. Um, but I, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear you read chemo poem number one. For sure. Okay. Chemo poem number one. Let's try writing with music on. Let's try writing during chemo. Two weeks ago, I wrote by the ocean. Ridiculous prima ballerina sunsets laying their souls out inches across ocean gloriously arched over backwards, illumining footlight waves, past the overpriced fish and chips, salty air and malt vinegar, ocean eternal. I wrote and wrote easy words and seashores of time. Two weeks later, I write in chemo, with Goldberg variations infusing through my headphones, running down fear with beauty. With trastuzumab infusing through my body's tunnels like some Cossack mob, conquering and burning overpopulating cells run amok. I can't say I like this better, but I can't say it's worse for writing. Pain works just fine. Fear close as a CT scan suits. My days were measured before. Everybody's always are. The curtains just pulled back a bit. I always needed a deadline to get anything done. Which when I wrote that when I wrote that last line I I laughed after I wrote it because no, I didn't get it till I wrote it. And oh I was wow! Like, huh. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. After. It's way uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I I love this this insight that that this is this situation is not worse for writing than 
sitting by the beach. Oh, not at all. I mean, if anything, you know, it kind of, it presses you smack into it. I mean, there, there's just nothing like, I mean, there, I mean, love is, love's good, but um, <laughs> like, you know, euphoric love, lovey feelings, but there's just nothing like suffering to um, put everything in real clear perspective real quick. Yeah. And get, get you down to brass tacks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this idea that our days are always numbered and we can remain blind most of us can remain blind to that most of the time uh-huh i mean i can you know it's i have to kind of watch it on this side of it there's always if you've had cancer you've always kind of got this whisper in your ear is it going to come back uh-huh. but at the same time it's real easy to kind of go ah we well, like that one okay <laughs> and go back to thinking you're immortal and won't have to die once you know uh-huh. i mean Everybody's got to die once, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's. Uh, but yeah, it, it was super uh, sobering and super. There's a sense in which it was really empowering too. It's like I don't know exactly what I've got in front of me, but I. Yep, I know right now I got this and. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a uh, it was good for me. <laughs> and so that was I, in I, that I, sense. I have, yeah. I say I say statements like that, and I have to be real. I'm real aware that they're real loaded when I say <laughs> that. So, yeah, yeah. One of these poems I was reading, I, I was I was thinking about that moment um, at the end of the last battle when when Lucy is saying, you know, I love this, I love the new Narnia, uh-huh. but I can't help but be a little sad at the thought of the old Narnia oh, yeah. going away, and and and. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have you have this hope mm-hmm. that goes beyond this world, but but man, what a beautiful world this is! Yeah, <laughs> it's so true. You know, I feel like when it comes to a sense of being an eternal being, I kind of backed into it. Do you know the Madeline Langle um, young adult novel Many Waters? No. Okay, it's it, it's so campy in a sense. Like the the device in it is so campy. Sandy and Dennis, the twins, they accidentally get into their parents' computer and they accidentally go back to Noah's time. So like I think it's just after Methuselah, and you know who lived to be nine hundred and sixty nine. And God said, okay, nine hundred and sixty nine is way too long. One hundred and twenty, that's all you guys get. You're causing way too much trouble. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, oh, that's why life feels so short. Because we're meant to live 969 years, not 120. I had to get my head around that. It was like a baby step into, wait a minute. No, I'm supposed I'm supposed to live forever. That's why yeah. this is supposed to. Um, that's why this all feels so temporal, so fast. And um, I think I have a real hard time saying I'm a grown-up because... All things considered, forty-two isn't much. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. I think, I think, in the grand scheme of things, it keeps me real humble. Yeah. But, but also, yeah, this is a really. There are so many. It, yeah, it's a broken world, but it's a really beautiful world. And I, you know, my kids are sitting in the control room here, yeah. and um, I want to see, I want to see those stories unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's given me that what's happened has given me this drive towards. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely um, tempered some steel in me to hmm. to yeah. do the things that I love to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I I loved the the sense as I was reading through your your chat book that um, that even as you had this eternal perspective, the the things of earth became more important, and and even you know and making stuff, you know, writing. Mm-hmm. 
instead of that becoming a um, you know a, a feeling that well what's the point you know uh-huh. it, it it felt all the more important that you that you make stuff that you that you make a record of what's going on yeah no, I'm I'm here and and God made me somebody who writes and who loves people and particularly loves children mm-hmm. and um, I felt the the necessity to um, yeah it, it felt real necessary to tell the story as best I could and I think that there's something to um, I mean, I when in college I used to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which really? is which is a really dark thing yeah, to do in a that's sense. That's unusual. Yeah, I mean, it was it was. Well, I, I remember thinking like I remember having headphones on and like listening to Keith Green and reading Fox's Book of Martyrs <laughs> in college. <laughs> um, but you read these stories of these people, um, and it gives you gives you courage. Is it Hugh Latimer? Who, is it mm-hmm. Hugh Mount Latimer? Who was uh, was he burned at the stake? Was that him? I think so. Yeah. And like he told his buddies, he's like, hey. Um, if I if I'm handling this and this is okay, I'm going to raise my hands and let you know. And I think there's something to be said when you're in the middle of really hard things. If you know that God is faithful and you know that it is survivable, mm-hmm. and you and you're looking closer, looking closer at death than typically, then um, and. And it, and it can be done. Then I think there's something to be said for letting people know. I I wanted to help. It gave me courage, and I, I think it may give some folks courage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, could you to that point? I, th- I think maybe the the poem I'm thinking about is is the next poem on the next oh, page, yeah. Cancer Poet. Mm-hmm. I would love to to hear you read that one. You got it. Um. Okay, Cancer Poet. Cancer is an overgrowth, a kudzu. I thought you'd like that, Jonathan. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Tangling and strangling legitimate life. Chemo is a killing, a burning out, burning down to ashy carbon indiscriminately. But cancer, did you know that I'm a poet? My job is to cull through the chaos with tweezers and magnifier. I have wings on shoulder blades and ankles, just big enough for hovering me inches above the terrain, traversing without smothering my subject. With pen and pocket and fingers and eyes, I cipher meaning, siphoning liquid beauty that seeps from the edges into a tiny vial, taking pains with my pain. It fruits sweetly. If in this year's ravaging I eke an ounce of beauty, it will outweigh all of your ashy remnant. I can paste it on my foot soles and stick me to the incinerated earth, where I will wait for the rich loam, tear-soaked and fertile, to live. This is what poets do, cancer. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is so beautiful. Thank, oh, thank you for doing that, <laughs> Jonathan. More than yeah, more than happy to. Uh, here's a question: <laughs> Why do you say that the wings get you just inches above? The terrain. <laughs> I had this image of it. So you know how I said they were on my shoulder blades and my ankles? Yeah. I was seeing myself hovering because it was the best way I could get close with, yeah. with yeah. <laughs> being right above it. Yeah. I had this image of, um, I mean, of hovering inches above all of this burnt out, um, burnt out, ruined, um, you know. All of this this ashy volcanic terrain, and taking tweezers to pick through, <laughs> because it felt like so much, so much loss, so much potential loss, uh-huh. and I was like, oh, always, I really do think that um, I, I don't think God ever does anything without 
some without some hint of glory to mm-hmm. it, some hint that he is up to something good. Yeah. Um, somewhere in there. I mean, I, I really can't. This is my super hard thing, and I also really can't compare it to a lot of the atrocities that people have gone through. Right. I mean, yeah, I'm facing death, but I'm also facing death. I'm facing death with privilege, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And you look at you look at people in concentration camps and things who found beauty in the midst of it. Yeah. Um, so it felt like I think it. Um, what's the past sense of behoove? Um, it behoove. Behooved, I think. It behoved me to. Yeah. Felt like I oughta. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I was when uh, when Milton starts Paradise Lost, and uh-huh. he says, "I'm going to soar above the Aeolian Mountain and, mm-hmm. and to attempt things that have never been before attempted in prose or rhyme." And he's he's this sort of boast, you know, it's like a rapper, you know, boasting about how what a, you know, he's he's the best poet ever, you know, he's soaring Whoa. above the, the mountain, you know, the the Aeolian, the Aeolian Mountain where the muses lived. He's mm-hmm. going even higher than that. And uh, wow. And then, and then I saw this much humbler and I think much more appropriate way of talking about the poet's job, which is to hover just a little bit above the earth, right? You need to have a little <laughs> bit of little bit of distance, mm-hmm. a little bit of... of uh, a bit of a grace to do it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but but it's not about soaring above the Aeolian Mount. It's about being just a little bit off the ground. Hmm. And uh, and as you said, picking like through that. with the tweezers. Yeah. I like that. That's great. Uh, I just love that insight <laughs> of, that you had there, that that's, that's the poet's job. Um, and then, um, uh, and then, then that insight that if if you can get an ounce of beauty out of this, it's it's it outweighs all the suffering. Yeah, beauty because um, with the idea that beauty lasts, that um, that that the things that God makes um, they stay, mm-hmm. and and death as much as it burns out, um, it they, they they go. That yeah. goes. They don't. It doesn't get to stay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that that stuff that stays is um, is precious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what I keep hearing in the way you talk about this experience is is that um, it is true enough that death and suffering destroy things. Uh, yeah, it is. And yet, there the things that remain are are you know, as you said, weightier. I'm uh, I'm super glad. That I went into the the hardest the hardest challenge I've had so far in life um, with a whole lot of tools. Hmm. I have been given so many. Um, I have been given a love of hymns. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Twitt did that. Yeah, yeah, and hymns are really good counsel through things. They deal with death and suffering. Um, they yeah they deal with them uh, honestly for one thing, mm-hmm. and um, if not without fear, boldly yeah yeah with hope. Um, I've got lots of good stories. Um, yeah, I think we're at uh, yeah all that rabbit roomy stuff. Yeah, yeah all that all that stuff those <laughs> rabbit rumors love. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, all that good good. Um, is it Chesterton, the dragon quote about, like, when we, mm. we tell children, it's not that there aren't dragons, but we know that dragons can be killed. Yeah. Yeah, I tell my kids that, you know. And and so I feel like this is my chance in the middle of it. I really did find that, um, I really did find that the things that I knew to be true were true enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were your kids old enough to to process what was what was going on? I mean, 
You know, um, kind of, sort of. I mean, story story was uh, five when this started, and Dell was little. Yeah. So the thing right off the bat, uh, the thing that they, I mean, Dell knew that Mama was getting sick to get better. And that was mostly what we told them. I don't uh-huh. think we needed to tell them that death was a real possibility. Yeah. Um, I think what we needed to tell them, um, and and Story, I think, Story has since kind of sorted that for herself. And I think she's uh-huh. going to have, um, she'll have that to work out for a good long while in her way. Uh-huh. Um, but in the middle of it, what they knew was that, the way we explained it was that I had a sickness um, that, that weirdly enough it it didn't make me feel sick right now but it wanted to hurt my body and to get better I had to take all this medicine and do these hard things that would make it go away and so mama was gonna um, I was gonna feel bad I was gonna be in bed a lot my hair was gonna fall out Mm -hmm. at which point story laughed like what (laughs) what is this Um, but so we we kind of told them off the bat that's kind of what's going to happen. Grandma and Grandpa are going to come live with us throughout this, um, which is exciting, yeah, and, and great. Uh, but that we kind of, yeah, the, I think they're kind of having to grow up into the reality of it. Del was only two, so um, Del was such a comfort because I would be laying there in bed and everyone would be telling the kids to leave me alone for a while, and Del would sneak in a side door and cuddle up <laughs> with me. Um, I think I call him, I realized afterwards, Afterwards, I called him a blue-eyed hot water bottle in two poems in uh-huh. here, yeah. uh, and then left it. <laughs> um, because he was, he just he would just cuddle up with me and just yeah. stay. Yeah. And Story was, um, yeah, such a such a sweetie throughout it, and, and is such an, a little empath. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a working through for both of them as they grow up into knowing more. Yeah. yeah. Well, that story you told them, that you... That you had to get sick to get better. Yeah, it's a, it's a, entirely true story. I mean that that yeah. it, that that story <laughs> feels truer than anything else you might have told them about this situation. Uh huh. You know? I mean it's yeah. Um, that is a um, you know, I've got this ailment that doesn't make me feel that bad. Uh huh. And I've got to go through the suffering to to actually be well. I mean that's. It goes for a lot of stuff, doesn't that it? That goes for a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, uh, I'm thankful as they start to deal with it that they will. They'll be. De- th- I'm thankful that I I'm officially called cancer free at this mm-hmm. point, uh-huh. and so that they're growing up knowing that this is something that while we still have to think about it and be careful, that we we've seen it. We've seen a, a good route of it. Yeah. 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 So That's there's great. some freedom in that, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. We are b- before we run out of time. Yes, I want to hear you read this this poem running running across the page. Oh yeah. Um, <coughs> by the way, quick question: mm-hmm. How how much um, editing and revising did these poems go through? Did you work on them? Work on them a lot? Um, I I tweaked in small ways. I did not work on them. I, I spent I spent months afterwards thinking about which ones to use, and I did small tweaks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I had dropped some lines and I clarified, mm-hmm. but I really kept the major sense of them. They, these didn't go through big major reworking yeah. afterwards. So this, this really is a record of what you were going through. Yeah, that's yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah. And this one, I didn't change a word of it. Wow. Um, I just wanted to. This is just a this is just a full on free write. Um, I just needed to get things out of my head one day. <laughs> wow, uh, it, 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 you, you wouldn't want to see any of my free write. 
You don't but, want to see a lot of mine. <laughs> okay, you want me to do this yes, one? Yes, please do. Okay. This is running across the page. I have to take a deep breath before I do this one. Um, I begin here. I start, I stumble, I stutter. I get some manner of something that's not nothing out. There's a new glove on my hand. It's stiff. My fingers snap back. It's hard work. Is it healing work? I stumble around. I get up again. Mentally stagger. Physically push forward. Fingers faster than thinking. Catch up head. Fingers are incapacitated. Held back, but doing it anyway. Can you do it anyway? Do it anyway. Just get it all out of your head. Just dump it. Compost. Dump it on the compost heat. Let it get hot and simmer. Just move. You don't have to have a plan. You just need to not let the stopping stop you. You need to hold on to your hat and move forward in time with a trail of trying in your wake. Fragments fall off, folding in on yourself, falling out of yourself. You don't even know what you mean, Katie. Go faster. Don't let reason try to catch up. You think you're so clever. You think it takes a convent. You think it takes someone outside of you. But you stand quorum Deo and you must begin there. Stop looking away and avert your eyes. Raise your gaze just to lower it, glory blind again. You tiny speck of glory, barely sparking. You mighty mankinder, kind of mankind, kind of kinder kid. Is this the best we've got? Is this the best I've got? No, of course not, obviously no. You are at the end of yourself and have no genius to give. And you are being contrary. And you think that you have to get it right, but Katie, you really have nothing right now, not much. Stop and shake it out. Don't medicate, don't judge, don't presume, just run. Run across the page. Fingers and buttons and clicking and clacking and running across and down ropes on ropes of words, all tangled and tail end frayed, made messy, mope ropes, muddled up, muddled down, enough, never enough, but not intended to be, not made to be, never enough. So run into the enough and find out if it holds, if it's strong enough, enough, enough. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I had not thought about this until... I've heard you read this before. I've read it a few times myself, and I've heard you read it again. It wasn't until this time, and I don't, I don't know if, if this is even what you, what you meant or knew you meant, but the question, you don't even know what you mean, mm-hmm. Katie, <laughs> is there are two ways to, to think about that. Maybe I'll, I wonder if you meant it both ways. One is, I don't know what I mean to say, and the other is, I don't even know what my own meaning is. Mm-hmm. And... Yes. You you meant both of those as you were were you conscious of, of, uh, of the the second not at the moment. Yeah. No, there's a lot of this that I felt like afterwards kind of oh. It kind of feels like you you meaning without knowing what you're meaning. Sometimes. Yeah. And uh Yeah, I don't know how you I don't know if there's a method to get here to do this. Uh, <laughs> but but the 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 wisdom here in I saying mean, I, I would go I would say extreme vulnerability uh-huh. <laughs> having moments where you just extreme desperation uh-huh. yeah I mean I think I think it takes getting down to desperately having yeah desperately needing to get words out desperately needing to get meaning uh-huh. yeah this was a scramble this was a this was a desperate scramble when I wrote it mm. yeah. Yeah, that, I mean the, the idea of the 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 fingers getting ahead of the brain. There's, I I, I can't sort this out. There, there's some important wisdom there for writers. You know. 
You know, I've been realizing that the fingers and the brain part, that's interesting. I've been thinking a lot lately about the brain and the mouth part because mm. I've been doing some podcasts here. And when I, <laughs> when I listen back, um, when I listen back to them, I realize that I kind of make sense. <laughs> but what's funny is when I'm in the midst of it, um, I mean, I sing, and so I'm used mm -hmm. to hearing myself sing songs. But when I listen to myself talk for a while, I'm realizing that my brain goes a whole lot faster than my mouth does. Mm. Uh, and I think everybody has to choose what comes out of their mouth. There's a lot of good proverbs about that. <laughs> but in order for me to talk at a normal pace with other human beings, I have to really take a breath and sort and slow down a little bit mm -hmm. because I feel like there are so many things going on in my head and I don't know exactly what's going to come out of my mouth and I can't plan it too well before it does. I think I'm somebody who tends to take in a lot of information and a lot of impressions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean I have much wisdom. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm super smart, but I think what it does mean is that I'm made in such a way that I'm taking in a whole lot of things at a lot of levels at the same time. Uh -huh. And and when I write, I have to sort that stuff out. Mm. Um, and the, the lovely thing about writing, like the, the hand part of writing, is that I have to slow it down. Writing goes a number of times slower than talking. Right. And I was telling a friend yesterday, I've come up with this weird little script that I write with. Sometimes I've been writing in cursive lately. lately. It's been a long time, but I was uh -huh. teach, I teach my daughter cursive now uh -huh. in school. We homeschool. But um, I, a lot of times, instead of just writing left to right normally, I write a lot of letters where I start going one direction, but I'll write them upside down and backwards and stuff to slow me down as really? I write. It's weird, huh. but there it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have I recently reread um, The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield's oh, book. Oh, man, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, that, that book gets on my nerves in a lot of ways. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah. But they're, they're all, you know, <laughs> I'll go from being annoyed, 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 and I, you know, this is, you know, stop this macho business. I'm tired. I'm tired. Yeah. And, and then. And then, you know, suddenly there's this moment of, of real insight and wisdom. Uh -huh. and, and But he talks about the difference between the ego and the self. Uh -huh. And that, you know, we're we're so often trying to work out of our ego. Yeah. And, and I guess the definition he was using, and Madeline Lingle talks about this too, actually, in, in Walking on Water. But the idea that there's this, there's this part of our self that is the controlling self that sort of keeps things under control. Uh -huh. And, you know, the ego, that's, that's the ego, not just, you know, self-absorption but but that actual controlling self and there's so much more to to the self than that controlling self and this this poem that you just read feels like you managing to get beyond the controlling self it, like just this is just talking as fast as i can of what's coming out of my brain yeah mm -hmm. so i guess so yeah it's, which is still a little slower than i mean still for sure much sl it's slower than talking and it's much slower than your brain is going but nevertheless yeah. it's it's uh yeah, I did handwrite that one. Sometimes when I'm just trying to get it all out, I definitely type. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, just, I mean, sometimes free writing by typing um, just helps you dump everything really fast if you're a good typer. Mm hmm You know? Yeah, I just don't have any success typing. Typing? Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. I don't, anything that matters is personal to me, I don't usually. But yeah. if I just need to brain dump, sometimes that's a good way to... If I'm not hoping for any craft, yeah. if I just need to get all the words out of my head, yeah. You, yeah, you can... Yeah, I don't do it first thing in the morning. There's something about computers first thing in the morning mm-hmm. that feels <laughs> desecrating. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? You know, it yeah. just, yeah, gets yeah. me. Okay, last question. Yes, sir. Uh, who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh, man. As distinct from your favorite writers. I mean, that may be the same, but... Oh, this is so hard. Um, writers who make me want to write are Annie Dillard. Um, I can see that. that. She doesn't make me want to write, but I can say she'd make you want to write. Yeah, she makes me want to write better. Yeah. Yeah. I love how she sees things. I mean, Madeline Langle always. It's, it's, I've been going back and like digging deeper in her, her stuff that they don't publish now because there are things that are socially, uh, culturally awkward about it. Uh-huh. But, um, but she does. She really does. Uh, let me think. There's this whole, like, there's a whole, the whole genre of, like, spiritual memoir. A lot of those folks over that way. I mean, Nowen and Beekner. There's something about uh-huh. that whole world over there. And that makes you want to write? When you read Nowen and Beekner, you want to go write something? It actually kind of does, yeah. yeah. It's not just, like, soul-searching. It kind of uh-huh. makes me, I, well, maybe because of what they peek in me. But, yeah, yeah. Not, not necessarily because of writing style, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh... Poets, uh, Louise Gluck. Uh huh. Um, let me think. Oh, there's piles of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, Christina Rossetti makes me want to write. Really? Yeah, she does. Yeah. There's the sweetness yeah. and this honesty. I feel like Emily Dickinson has the same thing, but you know, with uh, with vinegar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Louisa May Alcott. Yeah, I'm just. This is. Wow. You, you, this is a tough yeah, one yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Katie. I've said this to other podcast guests, but there's a there's an extra level of meaning here. I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for. <laughs> I'm coming. so glad to be here. Right. I'm glad to be here with you, Jonathan. Well, Thank great. You. I, I I love what you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you. I love when I get to talk to you. <laughs> I do. It's great. We should talk. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.